listening to the Carleton University Political Science Podcast, brought to you by the Department of Political Science at Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. I'm Asif Amit, one of the PhD students of the program. The past two decades saw a level of global interconnectedness far beyond the scope of the imagination for the past two millennia. The expanse of information and communications technology since the 1990s has been nothing short of revolutionary creating a modern condition where the lens to which people view the world is filtered through mobile networks and the screens of their smartphone. While the ubiquity of the internet has no doubt made for an easier life, it has also created a myriad of new complexities, from fragmentation and isolation to new forms of warfare and insecurity. In the case of the latter, the internet has, in recent years, emerged as a new space for conflict with the rise of cyber warfare and cybersecurity as domains of politics, creating an entirely new horizon of possibility for conflict and war. From ransomware and monitoring to the undermining of elections and the hollowing out of democracy, issues of cybersecurity and cyber warfare have become existential political concerns, and yet governments around the world have struggled to respond to the new threats the world of the cyber has presented to the state. To help make sense of the politics of cybersecurity and cyber warfare, I'm joined this week by Alex Rudolph. Alex is a PhD student with the Department of Political Science here at Carleton, specializing on the interaction between state, society, and cyberspace. Alex, thanks for joining us here today. Happy to talk with you this day. So the term cyber is one of those concepts that, you know, it's just become both ubiquitous just because of how connected we are online, but at the same time, pretty ambiguous in some ways, politically speaking. Obviously, there's many different connotations of cyber as a concept, but as an area of policy and governance, what are we talking about when we're discussing cyber? That is probably almost at the center of a lot of what I research in that cyber is thrown out in many ways as a catch-all term in that when even you say cyber, we have a tacit understanding of what this means and not really clarifying on it. But the complexity of cyberspace and the internet as a man-made construct that is an imperfect system requires a technical knowledge and requires a specificity to it. In kind of my line of research where I look more at the use of cyberspace by the military and how I approach this and understand this will be completely different from those that are programming to do this. Uh, it's very context specific that needs to be understood when you're approaching this. And it's this complexity that's inherent to talking about cyberspace and the internet almost requires us to use uh, mental maps in order to kind of help us to contextualize this as when we look at uh, any website or even us talking right now, we are seeing the more pristine aspects of this. And, but what really lies underneath are a series of tubes, as a senator in the US once said, and that is difficult for us to kind of understand the ones and zeros behind everything that we see. And so part of our use of cyberspace as a word 
derives from fiction, particularly William Gibson is known as like the innovator and more or less created a, a genre of cyberpunk. And in it, he refers to uh, the internet or cyberspace as at that time, there really wasn't so much in internet yet. It was in development still in the DOD uh, and in universities, but uh, it wasn't until 1995 when the World Wide Web uh, started becoming uh, popular that we had an internet. But William Gibson in his book, Neuromancer, was published in 1984 and was talking about cyberspace in a way that we can draw parallels to what we understand the internet uh, is today. And we go back to Gibson's uh, formation and explanations of cyberspace to help us understand this complexity in the system. But when you rely a bit too heavy on these mental maps, you can have a detailed discussion without even talking about anything at all. You can refer back to some uh, speeches by Hillary Clinton, where she said we needed to get serious about cyber, and that this is much of the work of uh, Max Smeets, I believe is his name, where she's talking about we need to get serious about cyber, but cyber inherently doesn't mean anything that for us in talking about cyber right now could mean uh, a host of anything. But in my kind of research, I would steer down cyber defense. Yeah, or even myself, like I, I would view it as kind of being, you know, a public sphere sort of space. And that would be a, a pretty common one once the internet sort of left the confines of DARPA and the DOD. An idea of it being a global commons is pretty common and shared by many. And today, many would still argue it almost is still a global commons and uh, lawless in many ways, but it is slowly, gradually changing to in our early understandings in 1995 to even those uh, 10 years ago. As much as we are incorporating the use of the internet into governance, how we perceive this and use this will be drastically different in 10 years. If you ask someone 10 or 15 years ago if you would trust logging into a Canadian government website in order to get your social insurance benefit or uh, in order to pay your taxes, that reliance upon that system and giving the, that system your information. This is a gradually changing kind of process of how we contend with the growing cyberspace. Uh, part of what I look at in developing or trying to identify if there are uh, different forms of thoughts. Already, there's a lot of uh, literature that explains a methodology of cybersecurity, which is what we would be more familiar with in terms of ensuring that uh, tech and the internet is safe to use, that it works uh, based off of what we expect it to, to work uh, reasonably well, to use it to its full advantage uh, and through non-malicious means. But then there is 
in some states, uh, particularly uh, Russia, have more of a sense of information insecurity. And this largely has to do with the control of information and ensuring that information is not harmful to the state or whatever the state deems uh, important. Kind of some discussions on this, but no real significant analysis uh, of it and kind of how states view the internet strategically will be different and will inform how they approach it through strategic means, through uh, integration into the military or uh, intelligence organizations to make strategic use of this domain. So there has been limited or really uh, no research in this kind of realm yet to the degree that I'm looking at it, at least. So while we can all understand and see that there is a difference where we can look at in the United States, the development of uh, cybercom and integration into the military as part of this Western or American notion of cybersecurity versus Russia, what we particularly saw in the 2016 U.S. election of Russian interference and uh, ongoing interference that never really ended of using information for strategic advantage and relying upon intelligence uh, services in order to secure this uh, objective. I'm glad you brought up Russia because the the whole thing with the 2016 election is something I want to get into eventually. But you kind of mentioned some some really key terms I think people are familiar with. That's cybersecurity and cyber warfare. And in terms of these two notions, what kinds of attacks are governments dealing with? How common are issues of cybersecurity becoming for governments? The sort of attacks that uh, you and I would kind of see on a daily basis, be it a uh, phishing email from a random person saying that they are a fugitive and needs to transfer money, or a random email that sends you an attachment saying here is an invoice, but for some reason, that attachment is uh, an extension and opens up a program that you're not familiar with. This is sort of just a snapshot, but all of these type of attacks are what the government sees on a daily basis just as well, but on an even bigger scale. The type of threats that the Canadian government would see in terms of cybersecurity are exactly what we would see, where government workers are constantly being bombarded, if not uh, more than us, to try to gain access to their systems, to try and find an entry point into these government systems. As most of these goals are to obtain money uh, in some manner. But this is not to say that all kind of hacking or intrusion attempts are just for financial gain. But it really depends on kind of the actor in question. But then when we're talking about uh, cyber defense, this is largely dealing with uh, states. Kind of the, the best way to understand and frame the difference between cybersecurity versus cyber defense is that cybersecurity is like national security. We're talking about a more holistic approach, uh, a whole of government uh, kind of approach, so to say. 
where it's not just about the threats that exist, be it non-state uh, actors from uh, Script Kitty in someone's basement or uh, criminal groups to even states. All of these are threats, but you're also thinking about risk and that everybody within a network and system is a potential uh, vulnerability that we need to inform people about how to protect their systems and uh, inform people that they are part of the proper security of the system. And in the context of cyber defense or cyber warfare, this is when we're talking about the military. So the military actually uh, defending their own systems as you would be surprised just how much military systems uh, and equipment, be it tanks and sometimes even small arms, will be connected in some way or have potential connectivity with the internet and networks. And so not only are, do they need to ensure that these systems are able to be defended and are secure, but now we're starting to see a lot more states are developing the means to attack those same systems. In context of the NATO allies that I uh, largely look at their uh, offensive cyber capabilities, they're developing the means to either attack potential adversaries in cyberspace, but also what's referred to as active defense, where when a system becomes under a persistent attack by a threat, be it a state actor or a hacker that has gotten into your system and they just don't know where they actually are, which is more common than you may think, but at least not as common as it used to be. So when you're faced with such a persistent attack, you can't just put up walls and end it there. An attacker will uh, continue until it achieves its objective, requiring you to uh, attack back. Uh, more or less a counterattack on the individual. And by all intents and purposes, this is a an actor hacking back and is an integral part of kind of developing a state's apparatus to commit and engage in offensive cyber operations. So as much as a state may say they'll only use it for defensive purposes, Full defense even means that they're able to do some unlimited offensive action. And in this context, where in terms of cyber defense, we're thinking about threats, be it other states or non-state actors as a threat on the state itself. And so in thinking at it at the government level, this will be the difference between the minister of uh, national security versus the minister of defense. So in the case of the Canadian government, how are they responding to this current state of cybersecurity? Is the response adequate to deal with the concerns? I would say that depends on your outlook. Under Harper and the current governments, they have made strides, but on the cybersecurity end, I would say they are continuously grossly inadequate. In terms of digital governments, there's an argument for Canada being way ahead of a lot of other states in developing 
their own digital uh, governments infrastructure and the fact that there is a minister of digital governments speaks volumes to again, what the liberal government's uh, view is on it. And this is not to say that it's a liberal versus conservative thing as a lot of the early national security and digital government goals and procurements began under the Harper administration. And uh, providing a lot of these services uh, is great when we think about a human security perspective to allow people, especially now uh, in the ongoing uh, COVID-19 pandemic, it's much easier for the Canadian government to support its people with a good digital inf government infrastructure. However, on the security side uh, of things, Canada has been dragging its feet for probably 15 years now in a yeah, cybersecurity perspective in and outside of the military. So uh, it was earlier this year that an access to information request found that some critical Government of Canada systems, these uh, systems that are using these uh, great digital government platforms that I mentioned, that many of these systems that have been placed for uh, many years now on kind of the behind the scenes in terms of servers, they are kind of falling apart to that risk of uh, complete failure. And if this was to happen, it would be almost catastrophic and very bad uh, for uh, not only Canadian citizens, but the Canadian government in terms of securing and ensuring the continued uh, services uh, to its people. And so as much as we can take for granted uh, cybersecurity at times, that if it's sufficient, uh, such crises as our current one put strains on the system that we aren't always prepared for. And uh, it's part of that is why since the start of uh, the pandemic, there has been a marked rise in uh, cyber attacks uh, and intrusion attempts on uh, the Canadian government, uh, on uh, corporations and hospitals as well with the use of ransomware, which is when a actor is able to gain access to a system, they can then encrypt the entire system, preventing you from accessing it. And will not unlock it unless you send a certain amount of Bitcoins to them. This has been going on for a few years now, and governments and even Carleton University uh, a few years back was targeted in a ransomware attempt. And what we've been seeing now the past seven months are hospitals and kind of our health infrastructure is being targeted more and more by these criminals. Hospitals in particular are some of the most vulnerable and have some of the most archaic uh, networks too. So these are often very easy targets for these hackers. And because it's so critical to have this data for hospitals to function, they often will automatically pay. But there's never a guarantee that if you pay the money that they'll unlock your data. I believe it was here at Carleton when the network was attacked by a ransomware attempt. I don't believe they paid for it, but rather secured the systems 
and pulled up a backup of the server and some things were maybe lost in this process, but you're at least not supporting these criminals that aren't necessarily going to follow through on any tacit agreement to unlock your data in the first place. I'm interested to hear more about these criminals or potentially the terrorists as you framed them before. When it comes to these major cybersecurity issues and these acts of cyber warfare, who are the different actors theorized to be behind these attacks? You know, what are they generally looking for? Is it always just like a racketeering gig to get money or are there other things they want? I would say you generally can differentiate the actors between states versus non-state actors. But even there, it gets a bit uh, blurry because of how some states are using private citizens in these processes. And both these type of actors will have widely different motivations uh, and reasons and goals behind their activities. And so at least on the state actor end, it's the easiest to really understand. And that's using cyberspace for strategic advantage. When we're talking about kind of risk uh, and threats, state actors are after strategic advantage and how they go about this will be generally in line with their state's existing strategic thoughts and approaches. This is where why we're seeing the U.S. is using cyberspace in the military and trying to integrate it as much as possible into the military, being the most advanced military power in the world. The U.S. is also applying it within its intelligence organizations. The NSA, the National Security Agency in the U.S., is the one that's primarily doing this, which is co-located with uh, Cyber Command, which is a combatant command in the U.S. military that is in charge of its offensive and defensive uh, activities. But then when you look at uh, Russia or China, their motives will be completely different, and how they go about this is different as well. Uh, although they're looking at integration into uh, the military, Russia is using it in much of their intelligence activities and are probably by far the best in this and what we're probably a lot more familiar with now in terms of information warfare and electoral interference or what is generally referred to as uh, active measures. It is an approach by Russia to actively influence political processes in other places. It's a long-time approach that the Russia has had. I'm not too much of an expert on it, but this is more or less a way to view it. And Russia has long done this before the internet, but the internet has given them an even bigger platform to do this, and they've really excelled at it. And for China, there is a bigger focus on the uh, economic side of it, uh, which is what many are familiar with already hacking into various corporations, even DARPA, the Defense Department, to get uh, schematics and information about uh, military hardware. And we'll try to use this uh, to replicate it. But then also at the same time, China and Russia are also have a 
information security uh, mindset of trying to regulate the flows of information related to the state in a strategic way. And so this is where Russia's active measures and electoral interference comes in. Or in China, that is focused a bit more domestically in controlling the use uh, and spread of information in its uh, state that is heavily controlled. That's often referred to as the Great Firewall of China. It's best viewed as just a big wall around China that attempts to regulate all flows of information in and out of China's cyberspace. But then when we turn to non-state actors, it gets a lot more complicated. The ones that we're generally most concerned about are organized crime. The ransomware that I mentioned is really the go-to approach right now. However, this is not to say that ransomware is only used by criminals. I believe it was WannaCry was the result of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea modifying some leaked NSA tools, which included ransomware, to spread the WannaCry quite aggressively. The estimates of how much money this got uh, North Korea were in the billions. But it's kind of not fully known how much they did get, but it shows that uh, even states can use these approaches that we associate more with criminal organizations. We even see uh, some terrorist organizations using uh, cyberspace as well, not in a kind of manner to necessarily attack other states, but rather for information purposes. Uh, it was only with ISIS that we saw some particular groups or individuals aligned with them or claiming alignment would hack various Twitter accounts just in support of their activities. But this, I think, could probably be more kind of understood as uh, patriotic hackers. Patriotic hackers are sort of nationalistic uh, hackers. Uh, so they may not be part of a particular organization or part of a state's apparatus, but they may align themselves with this organization and hack on its behalf. We've seen this uh, pretty much throughout the history of the internet and cyberspace, where individuals not associated with a state will often hack on their behalf. I uh, would wonder and theorize that this potentially is then linked to contemporary efforts by some states Russia particularly does it the best. Um, China does it as well in terms of recruiting its citizens to hack on behalf of the state. And this is where that blurring comes in that I mentioned before, and that they will, instead of arresting and putting in prison various hackers that they arrest, they'll offer them a chance to hack for the state by having these citizens hack on behalf of the states, it provides a level of uh, ambiguity between if someone is acting for the state or if it's a citizen. And so this is where you can see some of the debates following the 2016 election with Fancy Bear and a lot of these names that are thrown out revolving around the uh, DNC hack. And it's because Fancy Bear may claim to be a private citizen, 
the intelligence community is in 100% agreement that it is a front for Russian intelligence. By just having this vague entity between the two, Russia is able to claim that it's uh, not them. Nobody really believes them, but it's that ambiguity and difficulty to attribute attacks in cyberspace to state actors that is kind of integral to why cyber warfare is a thing in the first place. Perhaps the greatest uh, example of this was when, or at least reportedly, when Israel bombed Syria's uh, nuclear facilities. They were supported in this by taking down Syrian radar network. There have been a few others, but we're still kind of in the nascent stages of seeing its full integration in warfare. But the ability to do this and being unknown of when or where it's coming from can give a significant tactical and strategic advantage. By this simple fact, everybody is trying to get it on it, but it is difficult to adequately do. Because of this blurring and just the technical requirements of the internet, certain states will take advantage of this more than others. And so those that rely on intelligence uh, services a bit more or use it for specific purposes will rely on it quite a bit. Separate from that, you would then get into what I would say is our more well-known cultural understanding of what a hacker is. From, say, 25 years ago in the 90s, the movie Hackers, that the image comes to light of when we think hackers. Like, as much as that the personalities in that movie are quite accurate to the culture that developed uh, during that era, those individuals today are now your cybersecurity experts and information security experts. So as much as I say information security here and associated it with Russia and China before, this is not to say that information security by itself is a bad thing, but rather it focuses on the security of information in systems. So as much as the cybersecurity is looking at the whole of the system, information security, you get into a lot more of the specifics of guarding and uh, securing the information that involves uh, more than the technical side of it, which really both cybersecurity and information security focuses quite a bit on that human component. But we're just getting into kind of the specifics of cyber and differentiations once again, getting to that complexity. And so it's those kind of individuals, those hackers that do still exist where they'll test systems and they'll want to try and see if they can find holes into a system. As much as we see this pristine side of the internet looking at this uh, Zoom screen, especially when Zoom was started to be more heavily used at the start of the pandemic, there were significant security flaws in the system and that there are many YouTube videos of Zoom bombing. These unsecure Zoom sessions, when we think about governments using it, is very bad in terms of information security. If they're having a private meeting through Zoom, what if it is not secure? There is, I would say, 
a general ethos in the community that developed in a culture that to hack a system is not always unethical. There are many stories. Perhaps one of my favorite was in the very early days of the internet and telnet. One day, some people found some users in uh, the network of the Los Alamos laboratories in the U.S. Those are where they built the atomic bomb and the laboratories exist to this day doing important research. I don't think they do nuclear research anymore, but I believe at the time of this hack, it was still during the Cold War and this telnet system was under attack. So you can kind of understand almost the seriousness of this. What they found were the people intruding on the system. They started getting reports of people through this uh, system being asked about games, almost reminiscent of the movie War Games. It wasn't until after some talking with these people, it just slowly dawns on them that they're not allowed to be in the system and they don't know who this person or people are. But it turns out they didn't have malicious intent. One of their first messages to the admins of the system was, we were spelunking in your electronic caves and trying to see how long this could go on before being noticed. And this kind of behavior is still very common. One of the stories is the hack of VTech. VTech is an electronic a toy company that makes learning tools for small children that are like uh, small iPads that are heavily restricted. This person, by just probing systems, he wasn't even trying very hard to see what he could get by hacking this tablet. He winds up in VTech's database by running programs that you and I could run ourselves. It's easy as downloading it and clicking and was able to obtain the entire login information of parents that had bought VTech. This included unencrypted passwords, uh, addresses, and the names of their children. Just utterly shocked by what he found and just how easy it was to get to this level. He was just furious that VTech was so reckless in keeping this database so insecure. And so he reached out to Vice's motherboard, uh, which I highly suggest uh, reading. And they published stories on this. And VTech just kept wanting to sweep this under the rug. And this is common for many corporations that are hacked. Until the hacker in question was probing a bit more, and he found that the database also had pictures that all of these children had taken and audio recordings and videos too, which is not just in the US, but I'm sure in most countries, uh, completely illegal. And so again, the hacker went to the media and the most that VTech got was a $450,000 fine. They are still operating today and still providing products that there is no stated guarantee to be secure. That's just creepy. So you mentioned Russia a lot, which gets into a really important issue I want to talk about, and that's the American election. The 2016 presidential election and the much-documented charges of Russian interference in it is probably the most salient example, I think, in people's minds when it comes to cybersecurity kind of entering the field of statescraft. And you know, now it's four years later, and we're in the midst of another presidential campaign in the U.S., 
Um, has there been a concerted effort to enhance cybersecurity in this election? Is the fear of interference present concern amongst the American security establishment of the election? What are the really big differences between 2016 and today? Uh, easily the biggest is awareness of it. Following the 2016 election, uh, all of the Baltic states, not really loudly, but they were more or less saying that like, this is what we've been dealing with for years now where Russian interference through active measures and information warfare is nothing really new, but this was the biggest, like most defining act of it thus far. And so being aware of it automatically will make people a bit more guarded, or at least we would hope so. Can't say for those that refuse to believe it, but it's true. The U.S. and really kind of all Western states, so I'm speaking on context of NATO, that NATO countries have made a concentrated effort for the most part in, in Canada. Elections Canada has taken efforts as well as the general security establishment. Uh, and in the U.S., U.S. has made some efforts in this area too, but I would say in the U.S. and really everywhere, is simply not enough. In Canada, for the last election, there are reports that didn't receive too much attention on the interference front. But the midterms in the US, there were like some actions, but not heavily. But the current uh, election, there are have been a, some actions and we are seeing kind of it in play right now. Probably one of the biggest ones is uh, the creation of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, which is kind of as the name implies, all about ensuring the cybersecurity and security generally of infrastructure. But the cybersecurity component of it is really the, the key there. And they've been providing updates and uh, reports on a lot of these. And it's becoming a really good point of contact on a lot of these issues. Uh, so that's one of the best things that has happened uh, during the Trump administration. But the biggest issues are kind of really everything else. That's as much as it's good that the agency now exists, the biggest problems are still there and exist uh, in the system, which is really Trump in the first place by continually contradicting the intelligence community and now having your director of national intelligence lie openly is flat out supporting Russian efforts. One of my favorite uh, scholars, Jason Healy, he has this kind of spectrum of national responsibility. And when I talked about the, uh, the blurring between actors before, Healy kind of looks at this ambiguity and draws out kind of a spectrum of responsibility of a state. There are like 10 different points in this. So it's a pretty uh, drawn out and bit of a complex system. But within this is knowing and supporting or not doing anything about something as being within the responsibility of an actor over these activities. So at least within Healy's spectrum, I would argue that Trump is ultimately responsible for the continued acts of intrusion and interference by Russia in the U.S. Right now, with the whole conspiracy around the uh, laptop of Biden's son, has been 
like across the field of intelligence uh, organizations saying it is a Russian uh, operation to interfere. And even, I can't remember where it came from, but a report from a reputable organization in the government saying that Trump and Rudy Giuliani are particularly prone to Russian intrusion attempts. And we're kind of seeing that play out right now. And our kind of awareness of these activities, I would hope is a cause and support for this conspiracy not uh, really being too successful and being kind of belittled, at least that is my hope. Uh, Big key points of kind of vulnerability that I see that there has been little done on it is the election infrastructure itself. And so voting machines and voter rolls, a lot of these are very insecure. And it's been the past couple of years that we've been seeing a lot of issues regarding voter registries. It's not out of the question to consider if Russia or another actor was able to alter these voter registries in states. As far as I know, it's believe that they weren't, but the potential is ultimately there that you don't just have to use false information to influence an election. And there's also the voting machines uh, themselves. So at least here in Canada, it's pretty simple. You have a small piece of paper, choose which candidates of the small amount of parties. But in the U.S., you're talking about like booklets sometimes of what you're voting on. Like I'm from California and they ship me a like a hundred page booklet to explain everything to me. So this will also involve pages on your ballot. So it generally makes sense that you would look to use electronic systems for this to save on the paper. You can reuse them, easier to use, to change languages on it, a whole lot of reasons for it. But when you think into like, how are you going to update it? Uh, how are you going to add new features? How are you going to uh, repair it? So you add you know, network connectivity. And as soon as you add network connectivity or any form of connection option, you make something insecure. Every year, there is a hacker convention and conference in Las Vegas called DEF CON. I'm not sure how long they've been doing it, but it's now an annual thing that they'll have kind of an election system section there to have people come in and just try and hack these systems. I think it was last year's DEF CON, a nine-year-old girl made headlines that she had successfully hacked one of these machines within minutes. I may have even been under a minute, but it was a astonishing speed of her skill at just nine years old, be able to do this. When you consider in a state or even educated individual that has malicious intent and the means to do so, they can target an entire community. And so now that we're looking at in some areas in the U.S. with the drop boxes, with one ballot box protecting or being used by an entire county or city. Think of this as kind of like when you have one insecure database that someone or some state with malicious intent can delete all of this. 
So it's it's amazing that all it takes is just something being online and suddenly there's a security breach or potential there. And I'm wondering, because everything is so interconnected now, as the world becomes more interconnected and the stuff you talk about in terms of online government becomes more common, what do you think some of the key issues for states should be regarding cybersecurity moving forward? Where should this focus be put into? Uh, there's... I'll speak on two fronts here, at least, uh, kind of as I've uh, emphasized throughout this on a cybersecurity component and a cyber defense. And speaking domestically and governments need to step up their security spending. Uh, a normal corporation will spend billions every single year on uh, cybersecurity, while the means of a government don't always equal to that of a corporation, but you should consider a comparable spending on it when you're dealing with such important information as, as social insurance or getting your SERB benefits. A lot of these human security aspects uh, are overlooked in cybersecurity. And my hope is, uh, especially once the pandemic uh, ends, uh, hopefully sooner rather than later, that states will invest more in the cybersecurity as it was a few weeks ago that there was the first death of a ransomware attack in Germany, I think it was. The attack uh, specifically led to a woman being unable to be saved because the ransomware locked down a system that they needed access to. And so on one hand, we can mention of why was a system there in the first place. Uh, I don't know the specifics of what it was, but the other, this ransomware attack was specifically targeting critical infrastructure of a hospital that to target one is considered a war crime, and I believe a crime against humanity. As attacks continue to go on, states from federal to local need to take cybersecurity seriously. As the more we rely upon it, the greater the cost of damage that will happen, not only in terms of economic, but human costs of it. These same arguments can be said for in terms of cyber defense, that a state needs to develop a means of cyber defense integration into intelligence and militaries to protect its state from attacks. Due to the attribution problem that we talked about before, the difficulty to attribute and know when an attack is a state versus a, a non-state actor, you don't know who is going to be attacking you. It's the security dilemma multiplied. A state needs to be able to defend itself in some minor way if faced with such an attack, not only in terms of guarding from potential state adversaries, but non-state ones as well that potentially have the means to inflict just as much harm as a state in cyberspace. The last question I want to pitch is just to hear a little more about you. You know, Throughout this talk, you've made reference to the stuff that you're working on, but I just kind of want to hear what exactly are you working on? You're a member of the Carlton family here. You're in your third year. You've produced quite a bit of research. Tell us about the work that you're doing, Alex. My dissertation work, at least, I'm... Uh, slowly working on my proposal. I recently made a innovation or eureka moment of a theory to use, which will be exploring structural explanations for cyber conflict. 
and understanding why states develop the offensive apparatus that they do in cyberspace. More non-dissertation work, I'm working on a piece right now that I'm shopping around about understanding cybersecurity professionals as part of the general national security community. So as a as being in Ottawa and researching defense, I've often been at conferences with generals and individuals from Lockheed Martin and former individuals that were in the military speaking in academic manner about understanding complex issues. But you very rarely see cybersecurity professionals where they understand how say, a new plane that is in the works with network connectivity, how this will be vulnerable to certain attacks, what the implications are for this, and what could be a better approach to cybersecurity in the context of the military. That we don't see their inclusion in this matter, and this is sorely lacking due to kind of everything that I've talked about here today, the human security component of cybersecurity, where amid the pandemic, cybersecurity professionals have been kind of the backbone of us being able to transition to remote work. Just this year alone, Microsoft has taken down two major botnets that were responsible for a lot of the uh, cyber attacks and malicious behavior on the internet. And Microsoft doing this had the support of governments and other countries and organizations, and they completely led this operation to do so. And this is Microsoft, a private business, but they are very much part of ensuring the security of us. In summation, I'm addressing like, why don't we consider them part of the national security community and that in Canada, we need a greater concentrated efforts to include them if Canada is expected to develop proper cybersecurity and cyber defense at a federal level. That's infinitely relevant stuff, especially given what's been going on with the pandemic. And I really look forward to hearing more about it. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Asif. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at CU underscore PolySci, on Instagram at CU underscore Poly dot Sci, and on Facebook at CarltonU dot PolySci.